Hello and welcome to another edition, episode number 10 of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. We're already on episode number 10. Hard to believe. We're working towards, yeah. working towards 1,000. I'm Jim. Joining me, <laughs> joining me as always is my friend, professional hitting instructor, renowned hitting coach, and co-host, Jake Epstein. Jake, how are you? Happy Father's Day, by the way. Happy Father's Day, thank you. Uh, I'm trying to do the math on a, on a thousand episodes. Yes, you know, and you know, a week. There's 52 weeks in a year. Uh, is that 20 more years? About 20. More 20 years. more years. 20 more. All right, we, we got a good start going. Uh, Maybe who knows what it'll be like in 20 years? Maybe we just have to think about a podcast, and it'll it'll appear automatically, like right. in our contact lens. Who would have thought 20 years ago that we'd have so much virtual reality? And here we are. Yeah, everything. We're surrounded by virtual reality and all this new technology. Hey, before, you know what? I mean, we could start doing someday two time two days a week, so then we get to one thousand even quicker. We could we could quicken it up. Quicken yeah, it up we need it. some more. We'll get a bunch more topics from our listeners. We we got some good ones coming in already, which is good. We do. Next week we are doing another uh, hitter breakdown, a mechanical breakdown. We're supposed to do that today. That's a programming note I want to let everybody know about. But we're going to push that back to next week because today we're doing. Our History Hitting Book Part 2. Last week we covered 1900 to 1990. A lot of good stuff in there. And today we're covering the last 30 years of hitting. Before we do that, though, I want to pass along a little note that I found this week. I I found it on Facebook, actually, uh, from uh, what's called Baseballer. I'm sure you've heard of it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was about, you live in Denver, Colorado. And that's where you and I first worked together and met. And it was about Larry Walker. I'm sure you know a lot about Larry. Mm -hmm. Um uh, just this this just goes to show baseball players and their OCD. Nothing wrong with that. You know, you and I both nope. have it, I'm sure. Nope. Larry Walker, this is from Baseballer again on Facebook. He was obsessed with the number three. He set his alarm for 33 minutes past the hour, took batting practice swings in multiples of three. Not sure really what that means. Wore number 33 and was married on November 3rd at 3.33 p.m. <laughs> Fun little Larry Walker fact. Did he get three thousand hits, Walker? I, you know, I don't know, but I can tell I you. I, I, but I you know I do have a note here that he did win the batting title, uh, late nineties, a couple of times. You know, I, I was thinking about him last night too, with Larry Walker. He was kind of under the radar a little bit, like kind of like an under the radar type type star behind. I mean, Dante Bichette was a little bit like that as well. But Larry Walker yeah. especially was that. Maybe it was just because it was the East Coast, West Coast bias, and he was right there in the Mountain West, kind of the middle of the country. But um, he was kind of an underrated star. He reminds me a little bit. Not, I'm not comping him, but he reminds me of his of how he's underrated, of a star today who I think is a little bit underrated. But he's a three-time All-Star, and Edwin Encarnacion. Not as talked about as yeah. much, but, he, but I mean, he's got some pretty – pretty good numbers there to back up a good career yeah larry walker was you know i remember walker when he was he was with the expos and that's probably why he's so underrated is that's where he started his career and actually had great years you know in montreal before he he signed with the rockies um i remember my dad telling me a story because because um you know walker was just just an athlete right i mean yeah. he was self-taught like you know he was just kind of did everything well he had a cannon from right field he was a great outfielder he could run typical canadian player right hand thrower left hand hitter great shape. Um, which he was in great they shape. typically yep which they typically get like from playing hockey growing up playing hockey they usually play with their right hand on top yeah 
of the stick and their left hand low. So when they play baseball, you know, it ends up being that same way. But my dad asked him, he said, you know, one day at Coors Field, like you, you know, do you, do you guess, you know, Larry, do you, do you guess pitches? You know, no, Mike, I can't, can't guess. It's too hard to guess. Can't do that. My dad says, really? He says, you just go up there. He says, yeah, man, I just kind of see it and hit it. My dad says, well, what happens if it counts like 2-0 and and he just missed with two breaking balls? And Larry looked at him and says, well, I'm sitting on a fastball then. And my dad said, well, what do you think guessing is? You're sitting on a fastball. <laughs> and they both laughed for like 10 minutes, he said. He said the whole round of BP, every time he'd look back and just laugh, he's like, I just never thought about it that way. You know, guessing is it as looking for or sitting on it's yeah. all kind of the same term but yeah. that's the as close i never met larry walker but that's as close as i got i guess yeah that story you mentioned hockey by the way i, I, I was always i saw a picture uh, i had a poster back in the day in college of a hockey player um who he was about to shoot the puck and you can mm-hmm. see his body was contorted and it was torqued almost like a baseball player when mm-hmm. he's loaded up rat with but obviously the bat was in a different slot different place Playing a skill sport like hockey, how much does that develop, in your opinion, your skills for baseball growing up? You know, having been a competitive street hockey player yes. during my junior high days, I can... <laughs> I was also a street hockey player as well. <laughs> oh, good times. Uh, I wish I played you know, more, to be it, honest with you. Yeah, it's such a great sport. Uh, I think it's an athletic sport, right? I mean, you, you look at hockey players, they're they're so much bigger than you think they are. They're big and they're strong and they're fast and they're on ice for crying out loud. Yeah. Um, the, obviously the eye hand coordination is there, but just overall athleticism. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you're trying to, and I use this analogy, you know, somewhat frequently, but if you're trying to swing an object fast, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a, a baseball, softball bat, a golf club, a hockey stick, if it's an axe in one of those nature games, sure. you have to move your body in a certain way to create enough energy coming out of that that object. And what you're seeing, you know, hockey, it's it's very similar. They're creating separation between, you know, their hips and their shoulders. It's just kind of an athletic move that starts the process of, you know, creating speed out of an object. So, um, yeah, I think hockey players definitely have no problem hitting a golf ball. I've I've played with so many hockey players in Colorado because the the Avalanche, those guys play a ton of golf, and they hit balls like I've never seen before. They hit golf balls, and it's just such a natural move for them, um, hitting you know coming from hockey and then playing golf that it's like the perfect transition. Yeah, yeah. I, I for the record, I do wish I played more hockey growing up. At one point, I was playing both hockey and baseball. Hockey is a great sport, and yeah. I think that mm-hmm. hockey players are some of the most skilled athletes. And there is a difference. I mean, I've said before. I think maybe I've mentioned it on this podcast before. Basketball players are some of the best athletes in the world. Same thing with football players, too. But baseball players and hockey players, they're different types of athletes. They're skilled athletes. Their Mm skill set is different, and it it takes a special type skill set that is different from football and basketball to be successful in those sports. I mean, when you talk about hockey, you just mentioned how big they are, skating on ice, what they're able to do with the puck. it's, It's crazy. And and by the way, able to contort their body on skates, on ice, it's right. not easy. On, it's, on that's ice. even hard. That's yeah. hard. And it's it, it's cool, like to 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 be able to debate debate different sports because you know being athletic 
is different than having a, a skill set. Like you have baseball players that look like they're not even athletes, right? I yeah. mean, you, you that was the old joke back in the day. John guys, Crux you know, you said John Crook yeah. and um, you know guys that were just sloppy and even today you have guys that are sloppy that you couldn't see that guy on a basketball court like there's no way that guy's going to compete on a basketball court but you have to and then you you see guys on a basketball court or you know a, a football player that you know would step in the batter's box and would have no idea how to how to swing that object right and how to use those different those different skills so i think that's what makes you know obviously the world go round but it's what makes baseball fun because you you can you know when you have freaks right when you have a an Aaron Judge or or a, a Giancarlo Stanton that are you know physical tools that that really you see on the gridiron all the time you know as as tight ends or or, or receivers yeah um, and all of a sudden they're doing something where they have to react in you know point one five seconds it's per point two five seconds. It's pre- it's pretty amazing, you know, when you put all of that together, that athleticism, and then the ability to to play the game of baseball. Yeah, I think the only, maybe I'm wrong, but the only football player or basketball player that's crossed over to baseball outside of Michael Jordan, uh, and had a little bit of success, whether it be in the cage, whatnot. The only guy I can think of, and there's highlights of this, was Odell Beckham Jr., who hit a couple of bombs in BP. Did he? A couple of years ago. There's. Well, I mean, Deion Sanders did both. Yeah, Bo Jackson, good. Yeah, yeah, Bo ja- yeah. I mean, there's a couple. Brian Jordan, I think, was yeah. another guy. But yes, for the most part, you couldn't take a guy that didn't grow up playing baseball. Yeah. Like you could probably take a baseball player that was a really good athlete that never played football yeah. growing up, and if he's a really good athlete, you could probably have him go out there and cover a wide receiver, mm-hmm. or or make a tackle, or catch or catch a you know a crossing pattern. But I don't think you could take that guy that never played baseball in his life, that was an amazing athlete on the field, and have him hit a pitch ball. Yeah, that's well, I think that's the difference. Well, let's get into good to- good stuff right there. Let's get into today's topic, our history hitting book part two. Last week, we talked about uh, nineteen hundred to nineteen ninety. A lot of good stuff was in there. By the way, you can go back and listen to that. Apple, Google, Spotify. The podcast, by the way, good news. It's now on Pandora as well. So we're all over the place. We've got the whole world covered here. We're on TuneIn Radio, the TuneIn Radio app. And if you have any questions for us, too, be sure to email us, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. That is jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. Jake and I on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Jim Tara. And Mr. Epstein is at Epstein Hitting on both platforms as well. Send us your questions. We have a question that we will get to at the end of the program here. But let's start with um, 1990 to 2000. We're covering the last 30 years of hitting today. And it certainly has changed a lot. We'll, We'll get to that with all the new data that's been implemented. But some of the key moments from that decade, 1990 to 2000, and boy, it was it was a jam-packed decade, that's for sure. Um, it didn't lack any excitement, I'll just say that. Uh, the Blue Jays won back-to-back tight World Series titles in 92 and 93. Uh, there was that strike in 1994, which wiped away the World Series. And then in 1995, the Braves won it, their only, which is crazy, their only World Series in I the know. 90s. But that talent and rotation and the hitters they had, it's amazing they couldn't win more championships. The Yankees began their run, though, in 1996, won three of the next four World Series. And then, of course, there was that home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa in 1998. I have some key moments that I remember from that decade, but I just want to see what offensively and, and just overall what you remember from that decade 1990 to 2000 
Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, my childhood kind of, not childhood, but I was getting older, right? So I was in my my early teens and then obviously through college. So, you know, I remember a lot. I think the part that jumps off the page was, uh, you know, the Sosa-McGuire, you know, home run duel was was so captivating and so fun to watch with those guys going back and forth every single day late in the season. Um, You know, another portion of that that decade you know it, which is sad is, is the expos were totally dominating baseball the strike year yeah. uh, pedro martinez was leading that staff and they were so good um, i'm sure walker was probably there probably at that time that i'm yep. thinking mm-hmm. um maybe vlad guerrero as well um but you know that team was so good that expos team and that would have you know maybe maybe would have saved their franchise there who knows if they won a world series that year yeah. um i remember sid bream Scoring on, uh, I don't know if that was who hit that ball. I can see him. Brian Hunter maybe hit that ball for the Braves, you know. Um, and he, he scored, and I don't know if that put him in the World Series or the, the playoffs. But I remember that, and, I, and quite honestly, I remember Griffey. Like, our, yeah. Griffey just totally dominated that, that decade, and he was so fun to watch on, on the field defensively. The home run derbies with his hat backwards, mm-hmm. you know, making making the game fun, you know, for for kids out there and, and playing wiffle ball as a kid and being all of those players. I was Chipper Jones one day. I would be Griffey the next day. I would be Conseco. I'd be Ricky Henderson. Um, I don't know that 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 is my my highlights. You know, this is yeah. kind of my wheelhouse of when I truly watched a lot and 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 got into baseball. You know, as a kid. You remembered where you were when that home run chase was going on, and when McGuire broke that record. I remember I was down um, at the uh, at the New Jersey Shore, in fact, um, in Ocean City, New Jersey, at our beach. I house. remember that because you were on uh, MTV, uh, the MTV show. Was it the Jersey summer? Shore. Jersey. No, was, no, it was before no. Jersey Shore. <laughs> no, I was what say, was the Jer- original one? Jersey Shore. Anyway. Jersey Shore was a little bit before, uh, a little bit after this time it was a little bit after that yeah no i do too i I mean i remember sitting um i was in missouri when it was happening right so i was you know i was in columbia and you know it's st louis is right there and we would have the game on our when we were practicing at the stadium we would have the radio coming out of the speaker so we could listen to the games every afternoon and evening when we were out there you know working it was so so awesome were you were you talking about real housewives of new jersey no, no, no! I wouldn't go that far. I'm trying to think trying to of what slick, it was huh? called. It was like the first MTV <laughs> spring beach break, something spring break. summer something MTV spring break, maybe probably spring break. Yes, that's that's probably what it was. Yeah. I think you're on it anyway. Well, yeah, uh, but Jersey Shore would be better for you anyway. Well, the um, the, the uh, Joe Buck's call too was tremendous. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. who are listening probably will you know turn this off now that I've. That I complimented Joe Buck, but his call of that of, of actually his uh, call of the seventieth seventieth home run was tremendous. But you do remember where you were during, you know that that home run chase. I think a key, couple of key moments for me, uh, the Yankees when they won the World Series in nineteen ninety nine, being the Braves. I was my dad was a Yankees fan for those who don't know, and I went to Game Four of the World Series the night Roger Clemens mm. pitched, and I still remember to this day we were sitting in the upper deck, and I remember vividly him coming off to a standing ovation after pitching I think it was six innings maybe fast forward now however many years later and here I am working for the Blue Jays and Casey Clemens was in our organization and he was with us on the Florida operations end of things and I got to meet Roger Clemens and I told him that story Hmm. so that that's That's one thing that really sticks out to me um 
as one of the, the moments in my head, the top moments of the decade. Uh, me, of course, not being a Yankee fan, just just overall. Um, the one one weird thing too, we talked about Tony Gwynn last week. The one thing that sticks out with me for me with him was that home run he hit in the '98 World Series at Yankee Stadium, and he hit it off the facing of the third deck. I mean, it was an absolute bullet. You know? Yes. Uh, so I remember that, which, you know, whatever, kind of weird. And, of course, I remember the home run chase. Now, looking at the players, you mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. Was, was coming up at that time. Um, the careers of Manny Ramirez, Derek Jeter, they were starting to take shape. Cal Ripken, Tony Gwynn, uh, they were starting to wind down. And Larry Walker, Dante Pichette, they were kind of mixed in there as well. Chipper Jones, Ken Griffey Jr., their careers were starting to uh, take shape as well. Who was your favorite hitter of that decade? My favorite player, uh, and I mentioned this before, was Jose Canseco. Yes. Um, I, I, he's, he was just so dynamic, um, you know, coming into the late 80s. You know, I, I'm trying to think, God, he probably came in 86, 87, you know. So by the early 90s, he was, you know, he was he was a monster. Um, so I would say, you know, the early 90s would have, would have still been Canseco. Um in terms of you know Griffey was was so so fun to watch so Griffey is definitely there and it was a weird time for hitting because you know you're you have this changing of the guards with players coming into the league that you know Griffey was a guy who hit a lot of home runs and he wasn't a huge guy mm-hmm. and you had you had McGuire and you had Conseco and you had like Albert Bell late 80s that were really kind of revel, you know getting into the home run stuff again but if you look back at their actual swings, they all swung up quite a bit. And then you look at the Ken Griffey Jr., and I'm sure you hit off of this, the T, the Griffey T that had the two bars that went, blue bars that went straight down. Right. At like a 35-degree angle. So you had to get your bat in, in between those bars and then swing all the way down towards your front foot. Yeah. And that was the Griffey T. And so you had this, this dynamic where people – there wasn't video excuse me there wasn't video all the time there wasn't slow motion video right and so griffey guaranteed thought he was swinging straight down at the ball like that when in fact he he didn't at all and so you have these conflicting arguments that kind of went back and forth where uh i believe uh mcguire was the same way yeah you have to swing straight down on the ball and here's a guy that swung up at like 30 degrees, dropped his barrel and hit the biggest moonshots you've ever seen before. Yeah. So it was kind of an in- interesting time. You know, the late nineties, we started to get into more video and that's when my dad started to come out with um, his teaching drills, you know, the end of that decade. And, and sure enough, it was, you know, what my dad titled it. Do we, do we teach what we really see? Mm-hmm. Like we see these games all the time. Are we really teaching what these players are doing? And, you know, that was kind of towards the, towards the latter part of that decade. Yeah. You mentioned when the sw- you kind of touched on it there when the swing started to change. I just want to pass along some statistics to you here uh, yeah. from 1990 to 2000. Uh, Tony Gwynn led the league in hitting three times. Mark McGuire led the league in home runs four times, 96 to 99. Uh, we had a variety of RBI leaders from Cecil Fielder to Dante Bichette. Another, by the way, Dante, and I, I know, right. I, I do know Dante as well, uh, personally. I know his son and his wife, yeah. I know the whole family. And um, 
I sound, I sound like I'm name dropping here, but for context, what I'm trying to get to is that he was so <laughs> underrated as a player to this day. He's still underrated. It's it's amazing to me. He was a good player. And he's a he's a really bright hitting guy too. Yeah. Like he's a really sharp hitting guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he was just a big personality. You know, he came up, but he was rough around the edges, right? He wasn't a smooth fielder. You know, he yeah, wasn't a smooth yeah. hitter for. I don't know how I, I don't know how athletic he was. I think I think Bo yeah. I think Bo is is a tremendous. He must. I, I always joke about people to people about this. I thought I think Bo got his athleticism from his mom, because Dante. Yeah. I mean, Dante was an athlete, but he but he like you said, he was rough around the edges. He was a slugger almost. He, he was a slugger. I mean, his forearms were like you know he had cantaloupes in each <laughs> forearm that he was smuggling. Like he yeah. you know he's just a. A big burly kind of guy. It came up with the with the Brewers, you know, and uh, just flourished. Did a great career in Colorado. Yeah, um, a couple of other statistics I want to pass along here. Runs per game were about four and a half, four point seven. Hits per game about nine. Home runs per game, point nine five. Uh, that peaked in nineteen ninety nine, one point one four per game. Um, and again, this is in context of all the major league games that were played that year. Mm-hmm. And then strikeouts per game, 6.14, which was pretty high for that time. It continued to, you're seeing a trend here going back to last week. It's starting, continuing to climb. The league batting average was 239. So you mentioned wow. you mentioned that the swing started to change a little bit there in the 90s. And maybe some of it had to do with the ballparks that were being constructed. Camden Yards kind of ushered in all of these new ideas for ballparks, you know, natu- going back to the natural mm-hmm. grass and the... Um, the the infield dirt and actually playing in a ballpark and not these uh, cookie cutter shithole stadiums. So, right. um, did the swing start to change because of that factor, um, or did it start to just naturally evolve to because guys now we're hitting more home runs, whether that be with PEDs or not? Yeah, I think you know I think the PEDs. I I, I think there's always a there's always a slow change, right? So the stadiums, you know, it would have been the, the 10 years after that, right? That the, the stadiums start to come in. So you're looking at early 2000s, right? right? Where the PEDs are really starting to go nuts. You know, the late 90s, they may have been there with guys, but it wasn't as prevalent as it was, you know, maybe 10 years later. But it started to foster that change, right? All of a sudden you see guys, you know, back in the 80s, you have you have Ozzie Smith, you, you know, you have... Uh, Ozzy Gee and you have you know a different kind of game right guys are fast they're playing on that concrete astroturf so there's you know they're just putting the ball in play now all of a sudden we slowly change we get we get different players that we look up to right that that are our our guides like I said playing wiffle ball I was never hey I'm going to be uh you know uh Terry Pendleton today playing wiffle ball right I'm gonna be Griffey I'm going to be Jones. And what do we try to do playing wiffle ball? Well, I'm not trying to hit a ground ball chopper. I'm trying to hit a ball over the the house or the garage. And so now all of a sudden these kids that are playing growing up, 10 years later, they're going to be, you know, maybe in the minor leagues and it starts to foster that. So I think that's where it goes. I I think, I I think the Sosa McGuire, the, the end of the nineties fostered the, the steroid PED, let's hit home runs because this is fun right and baseball wanted to jump on that and make money so ballparks got smaller i think balls got a little bit harder i think strike zones got a little bit smaller Mm -hmm. to foster that um i think you're not going to hit in the 90s because maddox and glavin are getting a strike zone that's like 21 inches wide instead of 17 
And I think that's, you know, why you see a 239, you know, league batting average probably is pitching was still on the forefront during that decade. The 90s was a great decade, just overall, I think. Yeah. And I was young, yeah. but... The music is the best. The music was great. The TV shows were <laughs> TV shows were tremendous. And look, you said last week you would love to go back to the 60s, 50s, 60s, and later. Yeah, I'd say, let's go back to the 90s again. You know, because here's the thing, too, with baseball. It was, it was great after the strike because there were home runs, but there weren't as many strikeouts. So the game wasn't like it is today mm-hmm. where it's feast or famine, and it's turning, I think, fans off. Yeah, I, I agree. There were there were dominating pitchers, and there were, but it wasn't. Hey, we're going to play for a, a a couple two run home runs. Yeah, you know that's that's what we're going for. If we get four hits, but we score five runs because we we get a walk and a home run, then you know that's that's what we have to do to win. And yeah, it, it does make the game a little bit more boring because there's not as much action. There's a lot of quick innings. There's a lot of one, two, three innings. And then when you get late in the game, there's really long innings because it's all about matchups and you're, every pitcher's throwing, you know, maybe maybe two outs, you know, or, you know, they're only, what are they, what's the new rule? They got to face three batters or something. That's, that'll help a little bit. But right. you have so much happening in the back end of a game that the first six innings take, uh, you know, like an hour, hour and 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden, you know, the end of the game takes like, you know, or it takes two hours, and then the last part of the game takes another two hours. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Let's step away from the topic for a moment here, take a break, and talk about what's going on this week with the lab. I know you've been booked with a lot of lessons, um, and there are some other pre-scheduled events that are going on, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So what's going on currently at the lab? Yeah, it's, you know, summers are great for us because it gives us so much time during the day, you know, to work with players. So uh, I've had a ton of out of last week. I think I had five out of state players come in. Uh, we had a couple players. We had a player from Alabama, a couple players from uh, the state of Louisiana, and then you know people that drove as far as being out of state, but were from still from Texas because it's so gigantic that were able to drive in, and then a family from Oklahoma. So it's been it's been great to catch up with families. You know, typically we do that. You know, we get them in and we work with them for a few hours a day, and, and that's that's um, rewarding for us. And then we still have our our summer uh, you know schedule going on where we have kind of drop in sessions during the day you know around the noon noon hour and then our memberships uh slowly filling i think we have about oh geez maybe 10 spots left it's been unbelievable for us the last two weeks people keep signing up and they're they're seeing progress and they're enjoying their time so we're gonna have to get creative and open up some weekend times because our our membership uh training evening training is starting to fill up you know from four to nine every night yeah, so check out thelabbcs.com to see uh, what package is good for you. Again, that's thelabbcs.com. Talking today about the history of hitting part two, our history hitting book. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe, like the podcast. New episodes every Monday at 9 a.m. We're on social media as well, at Jim Tara, at Epstein Hitting on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you have any questions, email us, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. All right, let's get into the next decade, 2000 to 2010, and I think this is a little bit of a contrast from what the 90s were, where it was a little bit more of a, I don't know, I don't want to say boring decade, but it wasn't as eventful, I guess. You had the Yankees and the Red Sox battling it out in the postseason, the Red Sox breaking that curse, Roger Clemens' 300th win, 
the Phillies won the World Series in 08, and that sticks out to me because I was actually at that parade. But that was actually <laughs> the lowest rated television World Series, um, I think, of the decade, maybe in like, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. But it was pretty, it was pretty low rated on television. I, I don't know. I, it was just, I don't want to say it was a boring decade, but across the board, maybe it was a little bit flatter in, in terms of, of baseball uh, and the entertainment value that it provided. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's got a black eye, right? I yeah. mean, a black eye with the PEDs, you have, you know, you got you got Sosa, you got Manny Ramirez, uh, McGuire, Palmero, Clemens, my goodness, A-Rod, you know, was so dominant during that decade that, you know, we look back at the time, it was fun. Look at these guys, you know, they're amazing. These guys hit balls so far, they're, you know, whatever, they're, they stay in the lineup, you know, all the time, they never get hurt. Uh, but it tarnished records right yeah. like i mean that that that's what it comes down to is you know hank aaron's record you know fell right and and that's a bummer you know um maybe it would have fallen anyway I, I i truly think bonds is an amazing player and now people really don't they they you know they just brush it off like oh bonds this and that but oh he was so good i mean he really was he was such a good when he was young he was so athletic you oh, know playing tremendous. left field and yeah. And still hit home runs. He just, you know, kind of turned into a, a, a different human um, with his work ethic in the gym and, and maybe some stuff that helped him. So I, I definitely think it's a uh, it's a black eye to baseball. Um, in the time when we were watching it, we loved it. Like, I don't remember thinking this is this isn't fun. Yeah. You know, I, I loved seeing those guys. Gosh, I I remember uh, God, the Rangers were just insane with the with the guys they put out there and the home runs that they hit they didn't really win with that team but no, no. you know they that was led they, by they, alex they, rodriguez they had, that was yeah that was led but by they had some yeah. they had some dudes so um yeah i'm trying to think what was the year uh when did ichiro come in there 2001 in 2001 okay so that was kind of a cool you know here's a different guy that yep. talk about a totally different hitter than what was going on yeah. yeah you throw Ichiro in there and um but yeah I, I you're right I I was there, there's nothing from that decade you know aside from you know guys just I'd love to hear your stats you know when you throw them out there sure. but guys just absolutely trying to get massively huge and hit bombs left and right. Well, before we get to those stats, just want to point out a couple of players, and you already mentioned one with Ichiro. His career was in the States was starting to take form there. Uh, he, actually, his first year was 01, and that was the that was the year the Mariners hosted the All Star Game. And I remember they did mm. on Fox they did like a speed tracker type graphic of Ichiro running out of the box to first base on a ground ball <laughs> that he was safe on. And I just remember the speed was out of this world and I stri- always strived to be that fast I failed yeah. I tried David Ortiz <laughs> that's all you can do David Ortiz was coming into form he was starting to get his legs under him I actually knew his manager still do uh, from huh. when he was with New Britain in the Twins organization but he was starting of course the Red Sox picked him up and he was starting to come into form as a big time major league player uh, Derek Lee that's a name you might remember Good yeah. hitter for a period of years there. Joe Maurer, who was one of the, arguably one of the, with Kirby Puckett, maybe one of the best Minnesota Twins of all time. Uh, his career was starting to take shape. Todd Helton, can't forget about him. He was entering his prime. Um, yeah. And my my favorite player of that decade, who I thought was a, just a machine. That was his nickname. 
He, I thought he could hit anything, and I thought he was the most mechanically sound hitter for about a 10 to 12 year period there. But from 2000 to 2010, 2011, before he left the Cardinals, Albert Pujols. Yeah, forget about Pujols. You know that that guy that guy was fun. Mm-hmm. That guy was fun, and you know, talking about swings that decade. You know, this is where hitting started to be taught. You know, hitting started to be broken down a little bit more. You watch ESPN, they, they're they starting to replay swings in slow motion. You start to have guys talk about it. Now they're realizing that, you know, swinging down to the ball really isn't happening. You know, guys are swinging up through the zone. You know, how much they're swinging up through the zone. They're rotating, you know, they're staying back behind the ball. Now it's kind of like a trend. It's, it's you know, linear hitting is gone. Right. You know any any sign of the the White Sox in the '90s is is gone, and you're starting to see you know players embrace that, and now the younger generation is doing it you know at the little league level you know instead of you know transferring weight to their front side and swinging down now they're staying back and they're they're rotating more they're they're hitting balls in the air isn't frowned upon mm-hmm. you know yeah. as much as it used to be and and then times are changing to you know fast forward to today when it's like oh my gosh we you know we have to make sure our specs you know on the hit tracks are are are, are a certain percentage ground balls fly balls line drives so sure. yesterday i'm giving a lesson to an up and coming softball player she's such a great kid too i just met her they're from new orleans um her name's ava hazard so shout out in case you decide to listen to this on your drive home um, but 14-year-old hitting balls 70 miles an hour, you know, uh, in the hit tracks, in the softball. She's, like, right below some of the college players I've worked with. So we're going through this girl who's very strong and probably not super fast. And I say, look at your breakdown here, you know, when we first started. And it was, like, 67% ground balls. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, split the other you know whatever we have 33 percent with with line drives and fly balls i'm like we need to flip that we need we need 60 percent line drives 20 percent you know ground balls 20 percent fly balls so you know fast forward to her afternoon lesson and we're we're looking at those numbers i said well let's look at bailey you know hemp hill at at, uh at alabama so she you know i had her stuff in there when she was here over christmas in the hit tracks we pulled it up and here's one of her sessions where she hit the ball, you know, 80 miles an hour or something like that. And and Ava says, Coach, look at her look at her spray chart based on ground balls. Fly. You know, it was like a 40-pitch set. She had 0% ground balls. Wow. So 0% ground balls, and she had, you know, like – and again, it was just like front toss, you know. she I, Nobody was trying to get her out. But she had like 78% line drives and then 22% fly balls, right? And she's an All-American, and she's a home run hitter, and she's big, and she's strong, and she's not fast, right? So I told Ava, I said, well, what does that say to you? I mean, she's like, well, we need to make adjustments. So anyway, we were making posture adjustments, and sure enough, we got her to hit far less ground balls and maximize her line drive power. So you start to see that starting and building in the early 2000s, right, where guys aren't you know, trying to beat an infielder, so to speak. They're trying to beat an outfielder. Yeah. It's okay to hit a ball over an outfielder's head. You know, My dad used to call them A and E line drives. 
ass and elbow. So when you hit a line drive, all you see is the center fielder's ass and elbow as he's running after it. He's like, those are the kind you want to hit. And I, I think that's where it started. So maybe we, we say to steroids, thank you for changing the way people look at hitting yeah. because now the game is more fun. Or maybe you know, getting it back it, to where it was when Ted Williams was playing and what he was teaching your dad. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, was, it was just a different, you know, we took out that, we made the game more offensive. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see the, the amount of runs per game this decade versus the last decade. Mm-hmm. The ass and elbows. To Mike ass and elbows. A&E line drives, it's man. A big Mikeism, right? That's a big Mikeism. That's a big Mikeism, and there's so many. Happy Father's Day, we, Mike. We can't publish. Happy Father's Day, Mr. Epstein. <laughs> uh, runs per game. Well, there were a variety of hitters that actually led the league so, in mm-hmm. hitting, so it, it can't really pinpoint one guy. Alex Rodriguez actually led the league in home runs three times during that decade. Mm. Again, 2000 to 2010. Uh, runs per game, though, were 4.7, so it didn't really change from okay. the last decade. No, it didn't. About the same. Hits per game, 9.1. Didn't, not much of a change. Home runs per game, about one. So it ticked up a little mm-hmm. bit. Strikeouts per game went up also, though. Six, mm-hmm. well, you see the trend again. Trend. 6.6 per game. Uh, the overall team batting average, the league batting average, though, was 265, which was Whoa. Kind, of, which is kind of interesting to me. So 265, and what was it, 239? It was 239 in 1990 wow. to 2000. Jumped to 265. Pretty That's big, huge. Pretty big jump. Right. And you can f- just put that on Pujols' back because that <laughs> dude hit like 330 every single year. Well, that I'm, year, thinking, that decade. <laughs> I'm thinking, again, you have hitters like Ichiro, high average. Mm-hmm. Derek Lee led the league in hitting one year. Joe Maurer, yeah. high average. Didn't hit many home mm-hmm. runs. Todd Helton. I mean, mm-hmm. high average. So there were a lot of right. guys, even Alex Rodriguez, too. When he, when he sure. led the league in home runs, he still had a very high batting average. Derek Jeter. I mean, these were – you had yeah. guys who really hit for high averages, maybe not as much power, with the exception of Alex Rodriguez and Todd Helton. But I think that, that was – and then, of course, Albert Pujols as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That could be a big reason as to why it was pretty good, 265. Pretty good hitters, my goodness. Yeah. So that was that decade. So going on to 2000 to 2019, to current day, we can't do 2020, unfortunately, but um, some key moments. Uh, the Giants started their run, 2010, uh, winning three World Series championships. I'm trying to think of more, I guess the Royals winning the World Series. That was big, first time since 85. You know, yeah. but that was a short. They had a man. They had a short window, didn't they? A very short winning. It's <laughs> they had a, a couple, right? They had a couple years. They made it to the playoffs. Then yeah. they won the series, and yeah, the most boring team ever, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. wasn't it boring? It was just boring. Like they, yeah. they just had such great pitching. They were like the first team to really get into. Hey, this guy's going to pitch the seventh. This guy's going to pitch the eighth. This guy's going to pitch the ninth. Remember, yeah. like had like Wade Davis was just nasty, and that they had like. Four guys coming out of the pen throwing hard. I don't know. I, I just that was like a that was a if there was a corporate team, that was like a corporate <laughs> team. Well, yeah, they won in two thousand and five years ago. Oh my god, remember yeah. remember it like it was yesterday. 
Yeah. And uh, the Nationals run, what they, they went on last year, I thought that that's yeah. obviously, and it's very fresh in my mind, but that obviously sticks out to me. Uh, I mean, that to me was the first team, I think, that finally understood at that time, and they probably still do, uh, they understand how to use analytics but not go overboard and still know how to scout correctly, and they combine the two rather than going one way or the other. And we saw that in the World Series last year, I think it was Game 6, when Trey Turner was positioned to the right of second. Analytically perfect, right? But mm-hmm. analytics would tell you that you don't draft that guy in the first round out of NC State. Scouting does, though, and they certainly got that right. right. At least, well, actually it was San Diego, but they got it right with him when they made the trade for him for, with San Diego. So that was yeah. those are the kind of the two... There are three moments that stick out to me in, in that decade. I don't know about where you stand on that, but or this last decade that just passed. Yeah, you know the the Giants really stick out just because we, you know, we know the the Bochi Bochi real well, and I did work with them some consulting work during that time, so that was that was fun. I was a little more vested in that team. Um, you know, as far as later in the decade, you know what sticks out: the Dodgers not winning a World Series. You know, yeah, the Dodgers oh, yeah. being so dominant yeah. every single year here the last, whatever, five years and, and not winning a World Series is it's somewhat shocking to me. But it tells you that teams have to get hot at the right time. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you what, the Nationals, their home run when they hit home runs and they do that little race car thing is the greatest thing ever because that's what it was like man yeah they put the pedal to the metal the last three weeks of that that season yeah. wrapping up the world series and they just didn't care. i mean they were they were balls to the wall every single game yeah the pitchers were like that they, they played defense like that and offensively they were they were so timely and so clutch because they had that inner confidence and they were just meshing at the right time. And, and I mean, that happens most more years than, than not, but, but it really stuck out that, last year. And I think it's cause they started 19 and 31. Yeah. You know, and I think, and, and I, and I yeah. think, and it's the Dodgers haven't finished. Yeah. Right. They're, they're just, they're, they're just cruising along, kicking everybody's butt, yeah. you know? And then it's like, Oh, they never had to push themselves. They never went through that that difficulty during the season where it was like hey what are we going to do here yeah you know we're in a slump we just lost 15 out of 20 games we better they never had that problem so all of a sudden you get into the pressure situations and that's when that problem shows up you don't know how to get out of it yeah and the nationals for many years there were in that same spot where they were just cruising along they Mm -hmm. led the nl east by 20 games and then they lost in the division series and i think the thing too that you remember from that run last year was that they swept I think it was what they swept the Phillies was it seven games in a row or something along mm. those lines maybe it was five games in a row but they won I think seven or eight straight swept Cleveland going into that postseason and you just got to feel you said to yourself I don't see him losing to the Brewers you know your team your right. I don't see him losing to to your organization there um at home because they're just not no no that's no disrespect to the Brewers, but the Nationals right. were hot, and then they go. Face they were the, so hot. They face the Dodgers, and you're seeing, even though then they lost those games, you're seeing how they're playing, and you're like, uh, uh, they, they're, <laughs> this is not over here. I, it was just, yeah. a, it was a tremendous run. It was a lot of fun last year. It really was that, that postseason. I think it was absolutely tremendous. I think I watched more baseball that postseason than I had 
in the last 10 years. That's interesting. Like, I think I watched almost almost every inning, like every Same. night. Like, my yeah. kids and I have daughters, right? So, like, they're not huge baseball fans. But we we sat down and watched and, like, thoroughly enjoyed those games every single night. You know, it was so fun to have that postseason. You know, those games starting a little bit later when I was done working and with lessons. And, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I wonder why uh, that is. Hitting... That's interesting. I wonder why that is. Yeah. I don't know. That's why the MLB uh, owners want to have the postseason, so people like me will come home and watch it and pay for advertising and not care about the players. But that's another subject (laughs) that we can talk about. But, uh, yeah, you know, hitting-wise, you know, all of a sudden, yes, we have have scouting reports. Averages have gone gone in the tank. But you know what? Part of the reason averages go in the tank is because of spray charts, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and now all of a sudden we have an idea where guys are hitting the ball and how hard they're hitting a ball. So you have a left-handed hitter that, you know, hits the ball, you know, 100 miles an hour off the bat, up the middle for most of it, you know, a lot of his singles. Most of his singles are base hits up the middle. Well, we take that away. Now we put a fielder right up the middle. That's going to take away 30 30 hits from that guy during the season. Mm -hmm. And I think that plays a big part in – um, you know why averages are down, but then we have to also figure out well how do we how do we compensate from that right now? All of a sudden we got I, I'm a left-handed power hitter. I got three guys on the right side of the infield. Um, if I spray it the other way, I might get a hit, but you know what I'm not going to get is a paycheck because my slugging percentage isn't going to be as good this year, right? So I need to drive in runs. What do I do to drive in runs? Well, I got to start hitting the ball higher and higher in order to hit it higher and higher. All of a sudden, maybe we make swing changes. Maybe we make it the right way. Maybe we make it the wrong way. And now all of a sudden, yes, I'm still hitting my 25 home runs, but now I'm hitting, you know, 210, 215 on the year Yeah. because of that swing change. That started because somebody put a shortstop up the middle, and now all of a sudden my batting average is 30 points less, and I got to do something so I can stay in the league. Yeah, and the shifts, yep, shifts were very starting to become very yeah. prevalent. Analytics is really, really taking form, too. I mean, it started back, you watched the movie Moneyball in 2002, 2003 time. But this is when analytics and metrics were really starting to take shape. Uh, some players of note, Jose Bautista was starting to become a star. Uh, Ryan Braun, Giancarlo Stanton, uh, they were starting to enter the primes of their careers. Guys like Derek Jeter... You know, Andrew Jones, um, Chipper Jones. I mean, their their careers were starting to wind down uh, and coming to an end there. So it's been we've seen throughout the decades some new players coming in, some uh, different type players, very good athletes come in, and some players who we grew up on during the time where baseball was peaking with popularity with the ninety eight, uh, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two type era. Um, they're starting to make their way out. Uh, who is your favorite? Who's been, I guess, your fa- it's a new decade, but who was your favorite player of that decade? Who's been your favorite player currently, your favorite hitter? Mm. Ah, it's a tough one. Um, you know, I got to go back. I, I got to think who, you know, maybe five years ago, maybe even nine years ago, right? Mm-hmm. You know, prior to prior to 2020, uh, you know, Pujols probably would have to be be in there. I love love watching him. Um, Mike Trout is so fun for me to watch. Not not just hitting, but everything he does. You know, I mean, the way he runs the bases. He he's just 
there's that old that old saying or quote that Joe DiMaggio late in his career somebody asked him you know why did you run so hard and slide into second base on that double when there really wasn't a play there yeah and he said well there may have been somebody in the stands there may have been a kid in the stands who had never seen Joe DiMaggio play and that's what I wanted him to remember sure that's what Trout reminds me of. Like, he's in a spring training game, and he's busting a 90 to first base. Yeah. Like, that's just the way he's geared. And you don't you don't really see a lot of that. No. Um, unfortunately. So, starting to yeah, I off. mean, you, you can't go wrong. Like, I, what, watching guys hit, like, I'll, watch, I'll sit down and watch Yelich hit, you know, all the time. Yeah. Obviously. Um, Pujols, I'll still sit and watch him hit and see what he's doing because he's so fun as a case study to – to see where he was when he first came into the league his build his body type his swing Mm -hmm. and over time as he's gotten older and less physical and not as quick and not as explosive what he's done to try to generate a little bit more power you know with his legs is what he's he's done he's always had really good legs but he's increased his his weight shift and his ground force in order to try to compete at an older age, which is tough to do. Yeah. He, he still is a great hitter. I don't care what anybody says. And he still has He's, right. excellent, excellent bat-to-ball skills and, and barrel control. Yeah. Some players yeah. um, to know, we mentioned them uh, with Jose Bautista. He actually led the league in home runs twice during that decade. Miguel Cabrera led the league in hitting three times as well. Another guy who can still hit, by the way. Don't let, don't let the critics... And looks great, by the way. Yeah. I think he dropped about 25 pounds. Yeah. See, this this time off, I think, will give players like him, pull holes, some older type players, some time to really heal yeah. and get themselves together to maybe have that second late surge yeah. in their careers. Unfortunately, with the circumstances, but you know, we don't to, know. Try, right. to make, try to make positive something positive out of all of this. Some statistics to pass along. Runs per game at 4.38, so they've dropped. Mm-hmm. Hits per game, 8.6. Home runs per game, 1.07. Last year, um, 39 home runs. Um, I'm sorry, one, 1.0, I'm reading wrong. 1.07 home runs per game. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an all-time high, by the way, throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then uh, with the strikeouts per game, 7.8. Very high. Um Last year, 8.81 strikeouts. Just last year alone, 2019, 8.8. Yeah. So 8.8 strikeouts per game throughout the league last year, most all time. Um, so you see the trend again. You see the trend here. Um, that, right. Uh, I mean, oh, by the way, there were 3.9 home runs per game last year, and that was the most all time. 1.07 was not the most all time. That was last. That, that was the decade. Uh, before, was the now, decade, before I confuse right. everybody here. There were 3.9 home runs hit just under four a game last year in 2019. That was the most of all time. And the strikeouts per game last year, 7.8, excuse me, 8.81 last year, most all time. 7.8 last decade, also highest of all time as well. So I hope everybody everybody understood that. But you're seeing where the game is now, where it's kind of feast or famine in a way. It is, yeah, and it's that's what's so great about this game. And and you know what, all sports are like this. There's evolution to every sport, you know, it, based on what's working at that time. 
you know, what, what is working. We got to, you know, as a pitcher, we got to strike guys out. We got to find a way to strike guys out. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to, you know, use rep Soto to figure out the spin rates and adjust those spin rates so that it doesn't look normal to everyone else. Okay. Boom. Now as a hitter, you're like, dang, these balls are moving crazy. I'm fouling off all these pitches I used to hit out. Now I need to make an adjustment. What's that adjustment? Well, we're not going to get 10 hits a game. So let's try to, when we do connect, let's hit a ball out of the park. And in doing so, we're going to, we're going to strike out a lot more. Yeah. I wonder if where coaching is gone, are we turning, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth going into depth more so with it now. Are we turning players into showcase players? Not 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 you or I, but but I'm saying coaches right. in general. Are, are are players being turned into showcase type players where they're trying to hit that certain metric and that certain number, and it's not just not translating to the game, and players aren't understanding why it's not translating to the game. Yeah, I think. Well, at the younger age, it is. Yeah. You know, at That's the younger age, it's we got to get to a showcase so we can get drafted or we can go to college. Yeah. You know, and. And what do people want to see? You know, most people don't really want to see you hit 10 line drives in a row over the, you know, into the outfield. They want to see, oh, whoa, he just hit two off the wall and one over the wall. Right. That, stand, that stands out to to someone or whoever's doing the, the pro baseball report, prep baseball report, or the perfect game report. Um, but I do think when people get into – Pro Ball, I think Pro Ball is doing a good job of, um, you know, hopefully they're doing a good job telling people this is what this is what really works. And I think in the college level, it's like that too. Yeah. For the most part, it's like you go into the SEC and guys are throwing ninety-five. Well, you know, certain things work offensively and certain things don't. So you have so many players that were highly touted that that failed miserably. Um, when they come out of high school and they go into pro ball and they get exposed and then they use that great maybe ability that they had and they can make changes so they can be successful so um, yeah it's not just about metrics there's so many different things that come into you know just seeing what a how hard a ball comes off a bat I understand that that's important and if you don't have exit velocity, then you're not going to play. It's just that simple. Like you're not going to be successful no matter what, how consistent you are, but knowing, you know, being able to take that, okay, this guy has special talent and that he's strong or she's strong and, and, and can hit the ball hard. Now, how do we maximize that God given strength yeah. and their good mechanics to a swing plane that, that plays out, that becomes consistent and allows them to compete against different pitches with different movement um, at the highest level possible. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Well, that's the uh, the end of our hitting history book here, part two, and just our overall history hitting book, in case you missed our first edition, first book, if you will. Uh, last week, <laughs> it's available in the archives, Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. We're also now on Pandora as well. We do have a question this week. This was sent to me on my Instagram, actually, at Jim Tara. It's from AD hashtag 5, and it says, Hi, Jim. I love the Epstein podcast. I have a question about hitting the low pitch. Do you lunge down to get on plane with the pitch like you're lunging with the lead leg or do you drop the back shoulder after you stride and adjust the vertical bat angle? 
I'll pepper that question to you. Yeah, no, I mean that's a that's a pretty in depth question. So, you know, there's there's what happens and there's how you teach what happens. Um, you you don't want to, you know, lunge. Um, you don't want to break down that front leg unless you're fooled and then you got to do it right. That's that's totally fine. But lower pitches, you're going to have more body tilt uh, inward, which lead inward towards the plate, which will lead to a bigger. Uh, drop in your barrel or your an increased or I guess you could call it decreased bat vertical angle okay that's the adjustment you make is you're going to have to sink into your legs more so as a hitter you're you know you're taking your stride you, you start to load before the ball comes out your foot is usually at the top of your stride when the ball is released so as your as the ball's traveling to home plate and your foot is is uh, getting ready to to drop you're gathering information on that pitch, right? Your, your, your eyes are telling your brain where this pitch is going to end up. If the pitch is going to end up high in the zone, you will just drop your front foot and you'll probably keep your posture exactly where it is and rotate sure. around it, hopefully keep your hands up. Your bat vertical angle will be very flat and your, your attack angle will be flat. If we deem that pitch to be lower, maybe a slider working down towards our knees or a sinker down towards our knees, then when we come out of our stride, we're going to land and sink. We're going to land and get lower to the ground. Our head's going to be lower when we, when we drop our heel. Our back, knee, and shin are going to work lower. Mm -hmm. That's going to help us get to that low pitch without having to do everything with our hands and our bat vertical angle sure. to drop it. So. You are, yes. On a low pitch, you're going to sink more. You're going to get lower to the ground with your legs. You're also going to drop your your back shoulder down and in more, which will in turn drop the barrel so that you can cover that pitch at the knees. This is also why the pitch at the knees is more difficult to hit yeah. because we have to have a steeper vertical bat angle, which makes it harder to square up balls. Um, so when I'm teaching this um, – I will tell you this, I spend more time on pitches that are up and destroying those than I am pitches that are down and destroying those. And I think we talked about this in one of the episodes. If I throw you 100 pitches in BP and I throw it at the top of your thighs, mm -hmm. you better hit like 85% of those hard, right? And of the 85%, like, you know... 80% of those should be for extra bases, right? Those are mistakes. If I throw that same pitch at your knees, you're probably going to hit half of them, 50% of them for hits, and maybe a third of that half you might hit a double or a home run on. So location is, you know, location, 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 very important. If we spend all our time on that pitch down and away, it actually, we have to do some things that, that we have to drop our back shoulder more. We have to bring our posture inward more we have to drop our bat vertical angle more mm -hmm. to cover that pitch which is great but then what happens is if we take most of our training there and then we get a pitch right down the middle at our thighs and we drop our back shoulder and our bat vertical angle a little bit then we fail on that one pitch that we got that we should have hit well so how you train is very important those are the adjustments you make though yeah your shoulder's going to drop your barrel's going to drop your body posture is going to lean in um, and you're going to sink lower in the ground on low pitches. And that's why it's so important to work high pitches. It's important to work some low pitches in, in, out, all over the place, different speeds, because it just makes you, it, and it teaches your brain how to react to pitches when, 
when they come out of the pitcher's hand too. And just just as a question for for me, maybe a stupid question, but with bat lag, it's still the same. So if it's a low and in pitch, you're still releasing the bat from your from the lag position later, vice versa on the outer half. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah, that lag will still inside outside, and it will. You know, the further the pitch is from your center, mm-hmm. from your say sternum, the more you have to reach with your arms, sure. which makes the bat less stable and makes it harder to hit. So any pitch that's, you know, low and away or just low is further from our center. We have to use our arms a little bit more. So, yeah, you will see that. You won't have as much lag on a pitch down because you will release that barrel a little bit early. Mm-hmm. That's why the outside pitch is the toughest because you got to release the barrel early yep. and it's far away from you and it's down. And we're just not going to be as strong on those pitches as we are other other hittable pitches. Yeah, it's one of the pitch that always got me. That pitch on the outside corner, black of the plate at the knees. Oh, yeah, very hard. And if pitchers could live there, then they wouldn't. Oh. They wouldn't give up any runs. Oh, it's just okay. it's just that simple. But they do make mistakes. The runs per game would you drop even further. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll see what next decade brings with offense and hitting. We haven't gotten off to the greatest of start. Oh, we haven't even gotten started yet. So we'll see yeah, who that, knows? We'll see what that next decade does bring. Next week we'll be diving into our mechanical swing breakdown series again, part two. And we'll be talking about and discussing breaking down the swing of one Bryce Harper, who we've mentioned on this podcast just in passing many times. We did Christian Yelich. It's in the archives. Go back and take a look. And Well, the, the video is on YouTube, so you can take a look there. But go back and take a listen and follow along. And next week we'll be breaking down Bryce Harper. Yeah, Bryce is so so dynamic and, and so uh, explosive. with his, And he's always been that way since he was a young kid. That yeah. um, I'm looking forward to diving a little bit more into, into what he does at the plate and some different changes he's made throughout the years. Any questions for us, be sure to email those along or on social media at Jim Tara at Epstein Hitting, JimboPodcast21 at gmail.com, JimboPodcast21 at gmail.com. Happy Father's Day, Jake, Mike, Epstein, everybody out there. We appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next week.